you know, after the election, what does Facebook do? Well, it, it gets rid of the whole civic integrity team, including the group's task force. And so as things get worse and worse leading up to January 6th, nobody's on the job in a very focused way looking at violence and incitement and violations in groups, and they become an absolute hotbed and cesspool of delegitimization, death threats, all this kind of stuff. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. It's very telling of where we are as a culture, as a society, that we have a lot of words to describe the phenomenon of false facts. Misinformation, disinformation, information disorder, and of course the most infamous of them all, fake news. While the term fake news isn't new, its modern incarnation can be traced to the journalist Craig Silverman. Craig was formerly a reporter at BuzzFeed News and is now a national reporter for ProPublica. I first met him in 2014 when I worked at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia. Craig was a leading expert on fact-checking, and he joined the center to write a report on something he was increasingly seeing online that worried him, what he called fake news. While the term has since been appropriated by Trump and much of the right to undermine mainstream journalism... I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. For a moment... Fake news meant something very specific to Craig. False information designed to look like real news. And a week after the 2016 election, Craig outlined the extent of this problem. He pointed out how in the final months of the campaign, false election stories on Facebook generated more engagement than news from legitimate journalism organizations. The methods Craig developed for identifying and understanding this issue, and the work he has done documenting the problem of mis- and disinformation in the years since, tell us a great deal about the core flaws in our information ecosystem. They provide a through line from that prescient initial report to the January 6th insurrection that happened a year ago today. An insurrection largely fostered on social media platforms, such as Facebook, and whose ideas and falsehoods continue to foment divisions and justifications for what some worry might be more upheaval to come. Here's my conversation with Craig Silverman. Craig, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So look, you have been working on this broad topic of misinformation and about reliability of information in our information ecosystem for going on seven or eight years now, really. And when we first sort of came in touch with each other, you were, before the U.S. election, starting to point out what you saw as some flaws in the way information was circulating on platforms specifically. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what you were concerned about before Trump? What were you seeing that was wrong in our the way information circulated? Yeah, um, for me, I had uh, spent a lot of time kind of critiquing accuracy and verification in journalism. So I was very focused on what newsrooms were doing and how we were ensuring that the information we were gathering was accurate. And how do we go about testing and verifying that information? And, and what do we do when we get it wrong? And that was my obsession since about 2004. Um, but as we get to like the 2010 timeframe to 2014, 
the dynamics change so much where suddenly it's not just about the information that a reporter gets and how they verify it and then what they choose to put out there. You know, the, the gatekeeper model was really getting demolished in some ways. And so a lot of the information was, de- by default, it was already out there and already circulating. And so we had this massive increase in unverified, untested, unchecked information. And it was getting so much velocity and so much spread. And this is, you know, to go to your question of, well, what, what were the things I was seeing that was alarming me? Well, number one, this was kind of still early-ish time in a lot of web news and web publishing. And what they realized, people who were running websites, was, hey, more traffic we get, the more money we make from ads. And so the incentives in newsrooms made unverified information, rumors and claims, really attractive because if you if you saw it and you grabbed it, and even if it was just literally doing an article that was just pointing at a tweet where somebody made some claim, you could reap huge rewards of audience and traffic. And there was money to be found there. And there was also glory, of course, as there always has been in journalism and being first and being on the thing and the first one to you know write it and tweet it. And so the incentives were making newsrooms really interested in unverified information. But the incentives were also preventing them from actually applying, in many cases, standard verification and from doing the things that the audience should be expecting of us, which is, you know, being a trusted guide. And so that's, you know, when we started talking was basically to do a research project around looking at how news websites deal with viral rumors and also to try and identify hopefully some best practices around how do you deal with this stuff? Because it is out there. You can't completely ignore it. We should actually be helping people. That focus on how the media industry formally defined dealt with this problem led you pretty quickly into working on sort of the broader ecosystem and the structural dynamics in that broader ecosystem. Um, How did that transition in your work occur? I think part of it was just, you know, you, you couldn't avoid the platforms. They were the places where this stuff, this raw material was getting the attention and getting that velocity and that traction unlike anything ever before. And so for me, it was early on uh, being a journalist. Of course, I spent a lot of time on Twitter and was interested in Twitter and saw the journalist dynamics of like spreading rumors and stuff and retweeting rumors on Twitter. But, but I think it was doing that research in 2014 where I really started to appreciate uh, the power of Facebook in this whole area because it was doing that research where I started to recognize that, okay, you know, you'll have uh, people who run one or multiple websites, and all they do is they publish completely false stories made to look like real news stories, and they were getting insane traction on <laughs> Facebook. I mean, yeah. it was, it was, it was unbelievable to me what they were doing in terms of engagement. We're talking about articles with you know clearly false claims about science or about a celebrity, and they would get like more than a million shares and likes and reactions and all that. Well, there were no reactions then, but shares and likes and comments. And and what we did was we actually went and measured, okay, so Snopes has debunked it, and maybe you know USA Today has debunked it. And what does their engagement look like? Well, like a thousand. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I was sitting, I would sit there and staring at these graphs, and I'd be like, this is, I know I'm not seeing the whole picture here. But of the data we can get, this is completely topsy-turvy messed up. And at a certain point, you know, I started sort of talking about this a lot publicly, even before we published the research. And I had a conversation with somebody who was at Facebook at the time who had a journalist background. And, you know, they were looking at how we were tracking these rumors and everything. And I was just saying to them, like, you have a real problem with false viral stuff. Like, all of the incentives of your platform are helping these things go viral 
And these people are making insane amounts of money. And so that for me, like was starting to realize, yes, we have some incentives that can be bad in, as you say, the sort of traditional newsrooms and traditional media ecosystem. But anything that was bad as an incentive on Facebook was being seized upon by people who could, you know, t- who could recognize it and then turn that into huge amounts of money, which created entire new industries uh, out of some of the worst incentives of that platform. I mean, this is seven, eight years later now. We have a gr- we're talking more about the incentive structure of platforms and we're yeah. the financial incentives leading to certain forms of engagement and the production of certain types of content. But at the time, that was a fairly new concept. And so, I mean, how, how exactly does did the incentive structure at that time lead to people sharing and consuming false information? Like, what's that connection point there? Yeah, I mean, that was in the the sort of, that was when Twitter had said they are the free speech wing of the free speech party. Mm. So that was their ideology of like, you know, we are just, we are just, we're not just neutral, like we're good. We are doing good things by giving. And and then it was also at the time of Facebook's, uh, the two big cultural things was move fast and break things, still very much a part of Facebook's culture then. But also it was basically Facebook is a place for everyone. It's a, it's a thing for all, it's a platform for all ideas. And so those core philosophical underpinnings, which are very much in the sort of techno-utopian, um, you know, uh, this, some of the ethos that took place in Silicon Valley, I mean, that stuff was coded into how they were building their products and how they were managing their teams. And so, so these incentives exist because at Facebook, it was sort of like, what spreads is what is supposed to spread. We built a platform that enables people to share. What gets shared gets recognized by our algorithms. We give it more oxygen. And then if people still like it more and more and on it goes. And they viewed that as not just like a neutral thing, but as the right thing and the good thing. Whatever should be spreading the most is what should be spreading the most. We shouldn't be putting our thumbs on the scale. And so it was in the pure... A pure view of these platform companies that, well, whatever happens on our platform is good because it's like we're not determining what should spread or not. It's people and then the algorithms reading what people are doing. And I think that's it captures that moment in time of what their platforms were elevating when they sort of just let the thing run. Yeah. So there's a big debate about to what degree this phenomena led to the rise of Trump and Trumpism and that whole set of political realities. But it seems to me there's two things that very clearly played into that election that it were, that you were pointing out at the time. Um, one was clearly that there was a political ecosystem emerging that was spreading false information leading up to an election. So the American electorate, when they voted in 2016, were in part doing so based on false information circulating on these sites. That seems like one reality. And that foreign actors, in particular... Russian foreign actors capitalized on some of that capacity, that ability to spread false information. And is that a fair construction? And and how would you describe those two phenomena as related to this fake news idea at the time? Yeah, and I mean, I would I would add a third, which is not in the the fake news area, but it was also the massive rise of, of hyperpartisan news as a business model, but Facebook native hyperpartisan news, um, which, you know, which often bled into fake news. Uh, because what happened, uh, again, Facebook being very hands-off at the time and not and especially not wanting to look like they were, you know, punishing one side or another, you know, guys who started running political Facebook pages, mostly conservative ones, because conservatives have always felt 
marginalized by mainstream media. And so when new media emerges, conservatives are often much more likely to grab onto it and say, oh, hey, talk radio, we can make this our own. Hey, Facebook, we can make this our own. We can use this. And because can- they feel like outsiders to the mainstream media. Exactly. They are, you know, if you are comfortable and you feel like you're being well represented in mainstream media, what is your incentive to necessarily really try and test new platforms? And I, so I think for conservatives, uh, you know, who have not felt represented by mainstream media, when new media emerges, they're like, we're, we're going to use this to our best of our ability. And so I think that's why as when we get to 2014 and especially as we get to 2016, there's a massive conservative Facebook page ecosystem where they're driving people to sites filled with ads and they're making, I mean, I saw the financial documents of one operation that was run by literally two guys and they were making six figures a month just because of their Facebook pages. Wow. Uh, and so, so there is that whole thing. And what they realized was as more competition came, they had to be more extreme. The guy with the most misleading headline, and then eventually they actually just started making stuff up, some of them. That's who won uh, in this competitive environment. And Facebook wasn't wasn't doing anything to sort of slow that down or stop it uh, as we got to the election. And so there was absolutely pure fake news, 100% false stuff being seeded and spread and using Facebook as a primarily primary delivery mechanism. And then, yes, we have the foreign actors. We have uh, state-based Actors like in Russia who ex- who exploit this hyperpartisan environment and this platform with very few controls to kind of push and deepen divisions, and we also had money uh, financially driven foreign actors like my my friends, the teens and young men in Macedonia, who ran <laughs> a bunch of political U.S. Facebook pages and websites, not because they cared about politics in most cases, but because it made a lot of money and it got them lots of traffic, and so all of these things with different motivations and different goals. We're all exploiting the same platform because the platform was letting the most extreme win at the end of the day. And in many ways, it's gotten worse since then. Um, you spend your life tracking this and analyzing it and studying it. And you mentioned finding Macedonian teens and grifting scandals. And like, I mean, you've seen many of the elements as they've evolved. Um, how can you characterize how this problem has gone from this sort of fairly isolated thing six years ago to mm. where we are now? Yeah, I, it's, I, you know, I think there's been some positive things and then and then, <laughs> and some, you know, some really big challenges uh, persist. And, you know, one of the things that I think has overall been a positive is suddenly people cared about this, what was a very niche area. Um, and so scholars and funders and, you know, governments and, and, but of course that's always a double-edged sword because all of a sudden, you know, you have authoritarian governments around the world saying, oh, if we label the opposition fake news and pass an anti-fake news law, we can criminalize opposition and independent media. And so, so you know, of course, the awareness comes, but then the, the willingness of people to exploit that uh, comes as part of it. And that's kind of, you know, the story of, of how it goes. You look at Facebook, they were doing nothing. They didn't care about this stuff. All of a sudden they go, oh my God, look, we're in, we're, we're in a huge scandal. We're being blamed for this, blamed for that. They tried to deny it. They couldn't. And eventually they've become now the single largest funder of fact-checking anywhere, everywhere in the world. You know, they've done a lot of work, but also I think their core leadership and their core philosophy has not changed in a lot of ways. And I think actually Facebook is at the point now where they feel like they spend so much money on what they call integrity and they've done, you know, they fund fact-checking 
that their attitude at this point is, listen, we do more probably than anybody else. So stop, leave us alone. You know, it's never going to be perfect. And that's actually, I think, a really concerning place to be because there's still a lot more they need to do. But I don't think there's any will for them to invest more or radically do things different. Um, And then, you know, beyond that, I think we're also at a key moment right now where legislation, particularly in the European Union, and some legislation around transparency of platforms in the U.S., uh, it seems like we may see something this year on one or both of those fronts. Uh, And so, and that, of course, in 2016 was unthinkable that anyone would do any kind of legislation in this area or rein in these beautiful platforms that give everyone a voice. You know, it was a, uh, it's been a rude awakening for a lot of us in that sense. One of the things that's sort of evolved over the time you've been doing this work is a debate and maybe broader appreciation of the interplay between underlying societal issues and technology issues. Mm. And I'm wondering how you think about that debate as it's evolved. I mean, it often gets pitted in a kind of polarized way between this is sort of a, an issue of racism and polarization or it's an issue of right. technology. And I, I, I assume you think there's a more complex interplay there. But I'm wondering how you have tracked and engaged with that debate over the last few years. I feel like I got thrown in like the dunk tank of it in late 2016 because it wasn't something that I was thinking about or had done a lot of deep reading into. And so for me in late 2016, when I was doing my reporting, I wasn't necessarily thinking about that. Like I was trying to point out what was happening on the platform. And and the reason I say I felt like I got thrown in uh, the dunk tank on it is that all of a sudden my reporting was being used to make very determinative statements. Trump got elected because of fake news. I have never said that and I've never believed that. I think there's a whole bunch of factors. And so so that's where it's like I had to grapple with how my reporting was being misrepresented, but also sitting there and thinking about, well, how much effect does Facebook and does social media have? And and. You know, what's helpful is having done a lot of media reporting prior to that, I knew that trust in the media was already on a decline and that trust in the media was also uh, on a similar kind of path to losing trust in other institutions in Western democracies. So we can't just say it's this thing that's only happened in the last three years, right? And so it was similar with social media and behavior and throwing in things like polarization. It is complicated. And, and I think, you know, at the core of it, social media has, you know, is about enhancement and acceleration in a lot of ways. It enhances uh, divisions and tendencies that might already be within a society and within people. Uh, and, and if there are you know, already divisions, it's going to accelerate that. And so I do think that it, it has that effect on things that are already taking place. But it's also, they are so big, these platforms, and the effect of algorithms and it's, there's so much opaqueness that I think we can't just say it's only accelerating and, um, and enhancing because it's a completely new, different way of consuming information that I genuinely think is changing our interactions with inter- information. I just don't think we know how yet. Yeah, and part of the challenge I face in this is simply pointing out that it is enhancing already existing tendencies absolves the very specific decisions that evolve over time within these companies 
that change the very nature of the content and who's consuming mm. it and what's being seen. But yeah. we can't know that necessarily because some of, so much of that is hidden from view and so much of it because of the scale of what's happening is, is almost unknowable. So we're, we're transferring the debate onto terms that are very difficult to engage on. And I, I can imagine as someone who points these things out in sort of a specific reported empirical way that that must get frustrating that you you can make claims of incidents but it's very mm. difficult to extrapolate onto those broader societal terms yes and i mean look we the day we're speaking here uh i published a new story in partnership with the washington post where we we analyzed um about 18 million posts that existed in uh, public facebook groups u.s political facebook groups between election day and january 6th and so we use machine learning to identify posts related to like questioning results of the election. We identified tons of death threats, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and but we also know that 18 million posts from 23,000 public Facebook groups is still a slice, but we don't even know how small the slice is, right? right. Absolutely. So like, that's a lot of data, but that's like in Facebook terms, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't tell you what percentage that is. Uh, and at the same time, you know, within that data, we went digging in and we found a guy named Jerry Smith, a retired police officer who lives in uh, Missouri. And this guy seems to have been utterly radicalized uh, by, you know, Facebook and by particular the Gateway Pundit, the far right news website. And, you know, not only is he sort of radicalized, but Facebook gives him the power. He was running a, a Facebook group with, you know, uh, more than 10,000 members. Uh, and he was pumping it full of this completely false stuff, right? Uh, and uh, and so he has the power to be consuming it, but he's also in bringing people to him. And so like in that in that qualitative assessment, you have this guy who is, you know, seemingly radicalized by social media, using it to then spread those views to other people. Facebook doesn't remove his group until May, months after January 6th insurrection. But it's like, can we say how much he represents other people on Facebook? We can't. It's like, it is it is a frustration. You have to be very careful about that while also knowing that what you're pointing out has validity as well. I mean, if you looked at the content he was sharing and what was in the group that he was the administrator yeah. of, right. I mean, there were death threats. There was, you know, our, we're losing our country. There were calls for civil war. I mean, mm. and, he, and the, the crazy thing about it is because it's a group and he's the administrator, Facebook expects him to be the one enforcing the rules. Right. Uh, whereas he literally showed us in his personal Facebook account, he had he had more than a hundred violations, and he still had an account. He was still managing groups, and Facebook only removed all the stuff after we were like, "Hey, what about this guy?" You know. <laughs> What's the connection between the sh Facebook's real shift to groups and with the lead up to the insurrection? Do you, do you see there is a, a connection there? Or are, yeah, are, there is. Yeah. And I mean, look, this we talked to uh, employees who you know who worked in the integrity area, meaning overseeing like you know the breaking of rules and enforcing of rules on Facebook. And you know, Zuckerberg in 2017 announces a big shift to get people into groups because Facebook was seeing that session times were declining for people. Uh, and, but they saw that people who were active in groups tended to spend more time on the platform and they, you know, and their vision of a, a place for communities was aligned with that. And so it was like, everybody in groups, get everybody in groups. Um, and, and so Facebook put a big investment in groups, but what does it do for enforcement? What does it do for integrity? 
um, it does not make a similar kind of investment is what uh, employees tell us. And so as we get into September, before the 2020 election, a group of employees come together and say, we have to do something about groups. Uh, And so they form a groups task force and they start manually reviewing groups. They start seeing violative stuff. And so between early September and election day, they removed 400 uh, U.S. groups uh, that were filled with violence and incitement, um, breaking the rules, multiple strikes to get removed, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, after the election, what does Facebook do? Well, it, it gets rid of the whole civic integrity team, including the group's task force. And so as things get worse and worse leading up to January 6th, nobody's on the job in a very focused way, looking at violence and incitement and violations in groups, and they become an absolute hotbed and cesspool of delegitimization, death threats, all this kind of stuff. Facebook, I think, is trying to frame this insurrection and stop the steal debate as whether they caused it or whether people caused it. And it seems to me that binary distracts from a conversation, not about causality, but Mm -hmm. about how the platform was used and how certain decisions might have made this problem slightly worse. And I can only imagine as as you were watching this over that six months from when Stop the Steal campaign began, I guess in the summer, Mm -hmm. through to January 6th, that that you must have seen how the platform was literally being used to foment a very particular political movement. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And part of it is, of course, if you want to reach a lot of people, Facebook is a great way to do that, right? So if you are running a campaign or what have you, and you're trying to persuade people, influence people, collect email addresses, all that kind of stuff, Facebook, great tool for that. Whether you're selling a garden tool or you're trying to build a political movement, (laughs) you know, it's it's useful. And it is is really interesting because, I mean, we talked about this element of, of causality and we have to be careful about where technology plays and where it doesn't. And, you know, Facebook, depending on what it needs to achieve in that moment, they will either embrace the complexity of causality, or as in this case, you point out, they will say, we absolutely had nothing to do with causality. They, they won't even, you know, they won't even uh, address that it's complex and, you know, social media can have a role, but it's not the only thing. They will simply say it all, it, it's all Donald Trump's fault. Uh, whereas if if you look at some internal documents around polarization and the things that their internal research teams produce, like they grapple with these things in a more nuanced and complex way. But when Facebook needs to get away from a very bad you know PR thing, then it's a kind of binary. We didn't cause January 6th, Donald Trump did. Um, of course, it's amazing that they would say that to us in their comment because they didn't ban Trump's account until January 6th. So, you know, where was where was he spreading his lies? Where was he fomenting this anger? He was doing it on Facebook. And what changed on January 6th to fundamentally like write that equation, right? And it, the politics changed, obviously. The politics, right? I mean, it, it you know, the real world consequences came home to roost. And suddenly they had a justification for for taking his his account down when they have done everything really to avoid censuring and and taking action against his account. And I mean, that was reporting that Ryan and I did a lot in uh, in 2020 with looking at how Facebook had actually, you know, given preferential treatment to conservatives time and time again, because they are so worried about being seen as uh, liberal biased and mistreating conservatives. And it sort of, you know, came to the point where actually conservatives were getting better treatment than probably anybody else in America on the platform because they are so, you know, quick to raise concerns and accuse them of, you know, Silicon Valley left-wing bias. 
you know, that they really got away with so much. Um, and Trump, I think, is a, a pretty good example of that as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, around the January 6th stuff, uh, Facebook's line is, you know, it was planned on other platforms. There was worse stuff on other platforms. And the 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 violence is the, is Donald Trump's fault. And anything to not actually engage about what was their role, which is really why we, you know, did that group's analysis is they've released no data. What What slice of data can we get? How bad is it in the slice of data we looked at? And it was pretty bad. You know, we found more than 650,000 examples of election delegitimization content and misinformation. The average in our slice of data was more than 10,000 posts of that a day. And we know the number is way higher than that overall. And it seems that part of what can happen on Facebook, too, is not just the radicalization and the foment of particularly radical views, but the normalization of those to much broader publics. And it feels like that's in part what's happened over the years since the insurrection, which is some of these views, which even prior to January 6th last year, would have been seen as pretty radical, that Mm. the election was fundamentally illegitimate, that violence is a legitimate response to perceived undemocratic behavior. And like some of these trends, these undemocratic or these illiberal trends have branched out of these potentially small groups or alternative platforms and have become mm. normalized in, in American politics at the moment. Is, is that in part happened on these platforms and because of the way information circulates on them and the incentive structure of them? I, I think that, you know, the, the first place that I would really point to it and lay blame is first with sort of the uh, elites and leadership. Uh, you know, so yes, I mean, Trump is obviously a, uh, you know, a, a big factor in that because he dominates the Republican Party and because this has been his line and because anybody who steps out of line risks being attacked by him and having his, you know, funnel of money taken away from them, you know, it's basically captured the GOP. Um, so that's a, that's a very big deal uh, that I think, you know, there's a lot of grappling in media of like, how do we actually accurately portray how extreme the GOP has become? Because you either are with Trump or you're, or you're against the GOP at this point. And if Trump is, is you know, tripled, quadrupled down on this lie and many others, that's where the GOP is at. And so when you have that, when you have like the, that elite power structure in a what is a two-party system, one of those parties has become, you know, a party bent on attacking uh, the, the last election, and that's the litmus test for loyalty, then that will trickle out onto these platforms for sure. And then it becomes, so what are the platforms approach to that? And you know, I don't think a single platform had any kind of policy against, you know, election delegitimization leading up to the election. If you think the election might be stolen, we can't really act against you on that. Yeah, it's an opinion. And, it's, and so then even after the election, it was like, well, it has to be a specifically specific claim about, you know, you're saying this election worker, you know, put a bunch of fraudulent ballots in. Well, that's false. It's been checked by a fact checker. We're now going to label or remove this post. And and then I think the wake up call for January 6th was, oh, crap, there's a whole category of like not necessarily 100 percent false, not necessarily 100 percent violative of our policies content that if you have enough mass of it, that can actually foment and lead to violence. And that's what um, we see Facebook and I think others grappling with is how do you balance free speech with the fact that there is stuff that doesn't currently violate our policies, but that is clearly harmful and like, how do we deal with this? And I think that's a, a genuine challenge for them. Uh, and and I have some sympathy about the complexity of that. 
But I also think like they let it get very far to where, uh, you know, where it was easy for things to kind of get out of control. And so, you know, uh, it's been a year now that I know Facebook has been grappling with what they call um, non-violative harmful narratives, uh, which they acknowledge can cause real world harm. But I don't, they haven't come out with a policy around it. Uh, and I say that acknowledging that it's it's a pretty tough one to create a policy around, but they're actually realizing like, oh, even stuff that doesn't violate our policy, if it's enough volume and has specific characteristics to it, can actually cause real world harm and violence. And that's a big wake up call for them, I think. And I think leading to violence might even be a an easier problem than right. like broader democratic decline. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, or the rise of a liberal political ideologies, which seem to be emerging in particularly mm-hmm. in America, I mean, in countries around the world, but certainly in American politics. And d- what have they done to address that concern in the past year? So since, since the acute violence has focused attention, do you get a sense mm. they're, they're really working through that broader, a liberal challenge here? I don't think so. I mean, I'm sitting here trying to think of of examples around that. And, you know, I think I think they're constrained by if you're a really big platform and you need to create a policy that can be broadly applicable and also understood by your tens of thousands of contractors who are the ones actually doing the enforcing, low-paid, mistreated contractors who have to look at something for a matter of seconds and apply this policy. Like the framework that they have created to actually create these policies and enforce them it locks them in a bit of a box about how they can do this because it has to be scalable. It has to meet all of these kinds of requirements that are there because of how big they are. Uh, And they will always point to that and say, gosh, you know, we have to create a policy that's going to work for 2 billion people. And it's like, I don't have any sympathy for your problems because you grew to that size and you make insane amounts of money. So, you know, I'm sorry that it's so complex, but it's like, you better do the work. You guys have, you should put the resources in. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is I haven't seen really specific policies around this. I think what they're trying to do is, you know, find specific claims and very definable things that they can start to build rules around. Um, But how do you create policy around anti-democratic movements uh, when you also know that in your policy shop in D.C., you have to keep good relationships with Republicans? I don't think you can do those two things at this point in time in the United States. Like the way the party is in terms of, you know, spreading this big lie, there's a, there's a choice that some people are being forced to make. And we also know that the vast majority of the resources that are committed to stemming this problem are devoted to the United States. And 90% of Facebook users are global where some of these problems are much more acute and the lack of, and the, the presence of moderation or, um, even even language resources to moderate this content are are often almost non-existent. So, it, mm-hmm. how do you is that just a problem of scale too? And how do you square that in your work? All this focus on on the U.S. and Western democracies when really these problems are just significantly bigger and in some cases more consequential globally. Yeah, uh, I mean, and that's actually if you think about 2016. Before the U.S. election happened, there was the national elections in the Philippines with Duterte completely exploiting and abusing Facebook to uh, to harass uh, opponents, to harass media, 
to spread completely false stuff using uh, fake accounts, sock puppets on a massive scale. And it took Facebook years to actually take action on that stuff there. And so even like, and so it's nice when the, the, you know, the sort of global nature comes up in these conversations about how in Ethiopia, Facebook still doesn't have moderators for all the languages that are spoken there. Uh, how you can, you know, in Myanmar, they still continue, I think, to struggle to get uh, speakers there. And, you know, they're taking action against the military there. But some things they do and some things they don't. And you can point around the world. And absolutely, you know, in my work, I've had a U.S. and, and to a lesser extent Canada bias because I've worked for organizations in those countries who, you know, that's where the main audience is and the mandate is. Uh, but, you know, I, I often get journalists from Eastern Europe, parts of Africa coming to me saying, not just like, you know, I've gotten an unsatisfactory response from Facebook, but saying literally no one will respond to them. You know, reporter, uh, reporter in Romania has come to me multiple times of like, who can I talk to? There's this going on or that going on. And so, you know, they're not staffed up on moderation. They don't necessarily provide a lot of support around responding to media and people reporting stuff to them. And, and it is a huge problem. Uh, and, you know, why do we have this bias? Well, one, you know, major news organizations being focused on and based in the U.S. And two, think about Facebook and its resource bias it's still making a huge amount of money from its, you know, North American audience because they're worth more than a user in Myanmar. They're worth more than a user in Kenya or a user in the Philippines. And this is a for-profit company that at the end of the day is deploying resources based on business priorities. Um, that, is, that is a clear bottom line truth. So if if the rise of Stop the Steal and groups was the thing you were reporting on and watching in the lead up to January 6th last year, what are you seeing that concerns you now heading into midterms and the sort of a next election cycle? Do you what are sort of the trends and communities and technologies that are that you're watching closely? I mean, to be honest, part of me is like I would love to not have to do anything else about Facebook for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> is that but that's not the case so i don't i mean <laughs> so good luck with that story of this yeah. year it's about facebook right exactly <sighs> so uh i mean i i think uh tiktok is is very interesting and i would like to uh do more investigation and and work looking into tiktok because it is at that huge scale very powerful algorithm um incredible suite of creative tools in it to create very interesting, persuasive content, all of those things. Um, so th that's interesting to me. I, I think also, you know, the, the big thing going into the midterms, if we're talking about the U.S., I mean, it has to be how how bad is this, you know, election delegitimization? How bad is this more authoritarian style uh, takeover of the actual election infrastructure going to get? Uh, and, uh, and so the social media part is important, but it is, it is not the central focus on that because, you know, what's happening and, you know, colleagues might have reported this in the ProPublica, they have, you have people who absolutely believe the last election was stolen in massive fraud, taking over local government positions in the Republican party and then running. And so you, you know, that takeover of the GOP, I think is, is the thing to see, you know, which which force kinds of win, wins out. Is it the, you know, uh, the Liz Cheney uh, side of the GOP or is it the Trump side? And right now the Trump side is kicking the other side's butt. Uh, so, I mean, I think watching that and then seeing, as we've talked about 
are these platforms actually going to try and put forward some policies and approaches that are just kind of plainly uh, pro-democratic, which is something that I think they've always thought about them as being in their heads, but I don't think they've ever uh, put in in policy. And I'm interested to see if they're actually going to try and do something to that extent, because I think it's risky for them from a business perspective. Can you give an example of that? What might that look like? What's a pro-democratic Facebook policy? (sighs) I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. Uh, but I mean, I think it's like our, at a certain point, if you look back at the 2020 election, it, it would be fair to say, well, this is a settled election, right? And so if Facebook wanted to say that, um, you know, any person or particular any candidate, uh, you know, who, who does not acknowledge the result uh, or who is, you know, questioning it in certain specific ways, um, it, you know, if that will count as a strike, that would be uh, you know, I think significant. And I, I'm saying this, and I recognize anyone who works in policy at Facebook or another platform is saying, well, Craig, that's very vague and you need to be more clear. But I mean, I think it's like, as a starting point, do you declare that as a settled thing and and recognize that the continued undermining of that is actually a danger as, as shown by January 6th, and you create new policies to actually say that is not acceptable on our platform anymore. We are more than a year out, it is settled, and this has led to violent behavior. We are not gonna allow it on our platform. That would be, I think, one area where they might, you know, might have an opportunity to take a step. Yeah, even if it even if it means the sort of um, removal of a massive amount of content. I mean, that could be a consequence, right? Like if you say that it was a legitimate election, and anybody who says it's not is off. I mean, that yeah. could be tens of millions of users, right? It, yeah, it, it could be. Uh, and but I also think like the key on that would be. Are they their exemptions around political candidates to a certain extent around their speech? Uh, are there certain no go areas that they might actually enforce on candidates and say you will you will lose the ability to advertise on Facebook if you are doing X Y and Z, whether you're doing it in your ads or not? Um, so they could potentially build a little bit of a fence around candidates and saying you know what we're actually going to make it. Uh, you know, uh, some rules around this. And, uh, but, but what you raise is the thing that would cause strenuous arguments inside any platform, which is like, you know, we will be banning candidates. We will be banning tens of millions of users. We will be hammered every single day in right-wing media. Uh, we will probably have a right-wing activist investors trying to come to our shareholders meetings. Do we want this fight? And the answer within Facebook on anything like that has always been, no, we do not want this fight. And so I wonder if anything changes. I, I don't, I'm not predicting it will, but I think that's one of the things I'm watching to see if something does actually come out from them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, they initially... <laughs> A lot, they they haven't moderated political speech and ads for fear of that being the real lim- core limitation on free speech. Right. Um, but in some ways, limiting it there might protect broader speech, right? If the alternative is deleting tens of millions of counts, <laughs> maybe just reestablishing norms right. via political speech could be a, an easier task. You're right. That would basically flip what their approach has been, which is we will create an exemption for candidates (laughs) Mm. because they are candidates. Uh, But but the lesson, I think, of 2020 is and and of really Trump and Duterte and others is, you know, the danger of the authoritarian leader who is is able to run wild and you are giving exemptions for. Uh, And. You know, I think the only way Facebook would consider doing that is if is if they could think of, you know, a way of both sizing it and saying, and if you're a liberal candidate and you say X, Y, or Z, 
you're also going to get it, you know? Like, they would they would sit there and try to think about, well, what would be a, a fair one to do, you know, that seems like we're, we're taking both sides into account? That was my conversation with Craig Silverman. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abhi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursday every week.